Today's episode is about the future of customer experience, what the minimum expectations of our customers will be, the role that technology will play, and how you can differentiate yourself from your competitors. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. Our guest today is Stephen Von Bellehem. Stephen is a best-selling author and an international keynote speaker, largely focused on the future of customer experience. He's given keynotes in over 40 countries, and he's worked with some of the biggest companies in the world, from Google to Mercedes-Benz. Stephen is the author of multiple international best-selling books, including The Conversation Manager, When Digital Becomes Human, Customers the Day After Tomorrow, his latest book, The Offer You Can't Refuse. And apparently he's also written a technology thriller, which we get into in the first couple of minutes because I had no idea that he had written that. It's kind of different from all of his other work around customer experience and leadership. Um, we're going to talk about that at the beginning. To preview what the episode is really about, though, I'm going to steal from his website's about page. Stephen believes in a bright future where companies play the long-term game with their customers. His passion is spreading ideas about the future of customer experience. Stephen believes in the combination of common sense, new technologies, an empathetic human touch, playing the long-term game, and taking your social responsibility to win the hearts and business of customers over and over again. All right, if that's up your alley, you're going to love this episode. Uh, so Stephen just came out with a new book, The Offer You Can't Refuse, uh, and I want to talk about it a little bit before we jump in because I think it really does cover some important topics for the sports and entertainment industry. Uh, like most of Stephen's work, The Offer You Can't Refuse focuses on the future of customer experience and what it holds. If I had to sum up the thesis of the book, it's really about how automation and ease of use is the minimum expectation now with advances in technology so readily available and pervasive in our consumers' lives. With that minimum expectation from customers, we're going to have to differentiate by understanding the deeper lives of our consumers and our customers outside of our product and services. And we're going to have to innovate to help our customers meet their larger life goals, not just tell them why they should buy our product or service. Throughout the episode today, uh, it's really important that you put this lens on and apply it to your business. If after the episode, you're not quite ready to pull the trigger on his new book, uh, or you're like me and your your reading list is like 100 pages longer than what it should be, uh, future books, Stephen is constantly putting out great free content. Uh, for instance, I've got open right now an ebook that he recently put together talking about automated buying, personalized AI platforms like Amazon's Alexa, the new increased importance of customer reviews, and the future of customer experience. It's one of the more in-depth eBooks that I've seen recently. Uh, and he he really does a great job of talking about how that technology aspect, uh, and he gets really deep into it, uh, how it's going to play a role in your future customer experience. Um, additionally, one one resource to check out to if, if you like this episode and you want to go deeper with Steven, uh, his YouTube channel is really quite strong. Uh, he's got close to 20,000 subscribers uh, and he constantly is updating it with new videos. Uh, there's different keynote speeches that he's done that are up there. Uh, he puts out some weekly videos on different tips and things that he's looking at. Uh, we're going to link to that in the show notes so you've got it. Um, one other thing, you can follow him on Twitter. Uh, his Twitter handle is at Stephen V B E. That's at S T E V E N, the letter V and then B E, the first two letters of his last name. All right. Now that you know what this episode is about and you've got some supplemental resources, let's get into this conversation about the future of customer experience with Stephen Von Bellehem. Stephen, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So where in the world are you today? I'm in Belgium. I live in Belgium. I've lived here my entire life and I live close to one of the prettiest cities in Europe and that's Bruges. I love it. So we've had two people from Belgium really? uh, in maybe like the last three or four episodes. Really? So yeah, we had, I don't Do you know Jonathan Daniels? Do you know that name? No. He's in Brussels. 
Uh, no, I don't know him. So he's 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 doing some CX stuff as well. He's kind of a, a consultant, if you will. All right. Uh, but we just had him on a couple episodes ago. So right, uh, cool. yeah, I, I don't I don't know what it is about CX and and Belgium, but <laughs> here we are. All right. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself um, and maybe the best way to do it. I don't want to hear your resume per se, but talk to us about maybe the most fun project that you've been working on over the last 12 months All right. and the most challenging project that you've been working on over the last 12 months. Okay. Um, most fun project was uh, something completely new for me. I wrote my first uh, thriller, a fiction novel. Uh, you know, I've, I've been written management books for more than 10 years. I've written five of them. I think I can, I can do that. I think I can do a good job there. But writing this, this thriller um, was a whole new adventure. And I, I, I wrote the story in, you know, in the world that I like to be in in the future. It's a story that you know, happens in 2041 um, and, and AI is mainstream. And, and it, I try to describe a world of which I think it could be close to reality 20 years from now. Um, unfortunately, it's only available in Dutch for now. I've written it in my in my native language, but um, yeah, that was really excited. So I worked on that uh, for a year and a half, the writing, and it was launched uh, two months ago in November. And uh, I was really nervous for that, but the first reactions were so positive, and people were so excited, and also positively surprised that I came out with a thriller. That uh, yeah, it made me happy. That was really that was really a fun thing to work on for me. Well, one mega congrats, but what the heck made you write a thriller? I mean, I, I think as you talked about it, you said AI, so that's going to be a preview as to some of the things that we talk about later yeah. in the episode. Um, but, but what made you, I did not expect to be talking about a thriller on the episode <laughs> today, but I have to ask what, what drove you to make that? Well, my, my wife and myself, we have this annual habit and in, in the first week of the year, we have our own dreams and memory ceremony that we organize in our living room and then we look back to all the fun things that we did in that in, in the year before and we we talk about those but we also look to the future and and really pronounce some of the dreams that both of us would like to accomplish in the next few years and a couple of years ago on my list there was um, writing a thriller but in all honesty I was like I'm gonna do that when I'm retired right when I'm 65 or something like this. I don't have the time to do this right now. And then the crazy thing happens, like a few months after that, I see this Facebook advertisement of Masterclass and, and the, the project or the course that they were advertising was um, how to write a thriller, uh, follow this online course with Dan Brown. And I was like, okay, I need to be ready. I'm going to be 65 faster than, than you know it. So I wanted to follow that course. And I took the course, 17 classes with Dan Brown, and then I, I was thinking about it, and suddenly I had an idea. And then we we went on holiday on a family holiday. And um I have I have a wife and two two boys, they're nine and eleven. And all three of them were were sick during that trip. They probably ate something wrong, or I don't know what it was, but all three of them were like having a fever and they weren't feeling well. So I was bored like crazy. And I said, why don't I start writing and, and applying all the tricks that Dan Brown taught me uh, and, and, and see where it brings us. And then a year and a half later, you have your first novel. I mean, that's that's how it went. Wild. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and it, it definitely it definitely helps that you've written books before. So you have does, your process yeah. down of how many pages you need to knock out in a day and where yeah. you where you write the best. So that helps. But incredible that you you wrote a thriller. Um, all right. <laughs> let's let's talk about most challenging project you've worked on in the last 12 months or so? Well, the most challenging um, project was to completely reinvent my, my line of work, to be honest. Uh, I, in the last eight years, 80% um, of the work that I've been doing was giving keynote presentations about customer experience in you know almost every part of the world. And I really enjoyed that. And I, I, I was... Comfortable. I mean, my agenda was always filled six months ahead of time. And then suddenly COVID arrives. And I still remember the beginning of March, like March 3 or something. I, I got an email from someone asking me, could you do a, a, a presentation end of June in Barcelona? Mm. And, and I've re, I, I saw my reply a couple of weeks ago. I was like, no, unfortunately, I cannot do it because the end of June, I'm going to be in Sydney for a week. I have three keynotes planned in Sydney. So beginning of March, I was 100% convinced that I would go to Sydney in June. 
And then 10 days later, our country was completely locked down and my agenda was completely empty. And, and to be honest, I was really scared. I was, I was panicking a little bit. I was convinced that I would be out of a job for 18 months or so. I was really, yeah, disoriented. And then luckily, you know, a couple of weeks after that, it became clear that online events were becoming a big thing. And, and the truth is now I got more keynotes than ever that I'm doing. The last four months were, were crazy. Um, but it was, it was tough for me to reinvent myself because I really like live audiences. I, I like it when people laugh with a joke that I share. And I, I like to talk and connect with people. And one of the benefits of my traveling is that you can feel the culture of other countries and you can feel how people react to the ideas that you have. And sometimes you have sensitivities in, in parts of the world that you're not familiar with in your home market. So I was missing out on all of that. And I, it costed me a lot of energy to talk to a screen and not getting anything back. Um, so that was for me the most challenging part. Today, I'm perfectly fine with it. Today, I'm enjoying myself. I, I, I like my work again. Um, but the first half of the year, or let's say Q2 of 2020, that was really challenging to, to mentally get over the fact that I had to reinvent yeah. myself. Yeah, it, it, it's there's definitely pros and cons from what we've seen because I, I'm the same way where I like being in front of an audience. Uh, we uh, we do a lot of workshops where we've got the post-it notes flying everywhere and you're walking around and you're going from table to table and seeing what they're working on and helping the different groups. And we're like, hey, we've got to completely build new skills to figure out how to do this. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I, I mean, now I think we're, we're a little bit more adjusted to that. Um, and, and I think it helped that we were always remote first and I've been remote for the last, you know, seven or eight years. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I, I think you hit on something that's really interesting, though, because technology playing a role in customer experience. Yes, it impacted your business physically of being able to go out and, and go places. But I'm curious, too, as to as you saw it unfold, right? Delivering in-person customer experience has been something that for forever has been the staple of what is CX and difference between CX and customer service, but they play hand in hand, that in-person interaction. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm curious though, because I know you've spent a lot of time researching and studying the role that technology will play in CX and how it's already doing that. Um, So why don't, why don't we transition into that topic? Uh, Talk to us about a little, a little bit about where you feel like technology has impacted CX right now, and then we can maybe talk about the future state. Yeah. Well, uh, if you look back to the previous decade, uh, past 10 years, technologies that made a difference were, were 4G, mobile, and social. Uh, many of the success cases that we're all familiar with in the field of customer experience used those three technologies to become successful and to create a new kind of customer experience. And the outcome for customers was usually that it's very convenient, And that is a crucial element because the scarcest resource that humans have is time. And if you can save out time of a customer, they give you more time in return. That's the paradox of time. And those technologies really, you know, made a difference there. Today, we can conclude that 4G, mobile, social media are mature technologies. And if you have convenient interfaces that is seen as the most natural thing in the world. If you don't have it, you're in deep trouble. So it's hard to positively differentiate yourself with it. It's more a negative differentiator if you don't have it. I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see technologies like artificial intelligence, IoT, 5G, uh, quantum computing maybe, robotics, play a big role in customer experience. And I think that in the heart of that evolution, AI will probably have the biggest impact. Um, but that being said, I don't think that you know technology will be the guiding star for the future of CX. I think that you know consumer behavior and consumer expectations will be the guiding star. And what you see now is that we used to think that um, social activities were always physical activities. Um, today, we see that's different. I, I like the example of Peloton bikes. Uh, they're very popular right now. And if you look at it you know, from, from a distance, you could think a Peloton bike is like a very expensive home training device that you have with a built-in screen. But if you look to the details and make the analysis of its success, there are a number of components that create that success. Um, first of all, 
It's personalized training. It's like the Netflix of working out, but it also has a social component. Um, it has a life component. So it's digital, but it's life and it's social. And we used to think that working out in a gym was a social activity. But if you look at, if you, if you think about it, it, it's not, it's the opposite. You're just together in the same room with a bunch of people that all have their headphones in and their eyes glued at a screen and you don't talk with anyone. It's almost impolite to even talk to, to someone. It's a very individual happening, right? Versus with a Peloton bike, sud- suddenly you're at home alone working out, but it's more social because you have the leaderboards and you have the interactivity and it's a completely new dimension. So I think the the the, the success of uh, customer experience will be guided through how people want to experience every part of their life. And I think that virtual life and social will be three important components. I, I mean, you guys have an audience in the entertainment and sports industry. Virtual life and social will be the future of successful sports and entertainment applications, I think. And if you figure out a way how to apply those three, I think you can create a new kind of customer experience that will create a lot of value for people. Yeah, it, it, so it's really interesting. A lot of things that you said there that I kind of want to unpack. I mean, one is this this concept of digital and digital convenience being the baseline, right? Like that is it to me where the the comparison I'll make into the sports world is for a long time, uh, you know, maybe ten years ago or so, everybody was obsessed with having Wi-Fi in the stadiums, thinking that's what's going to differentiate us because people want to be on their mobile phone while they're in the stadium. And it got to a point really quickly where it was like, nobody's coming to the game because you have Wi-Fi, but they're not going to come to the game if you don't have it. It's the negative differentiator. It's not a positive differentiator. Exactly. And I, I think I think what you're saying is, you know, technology almost as a whole is becoming that same. If you're not digitally savvy as an organization, mm-hmm. if you haven't gone through a digital transformation and put that made that kind of baseline, it's going to be a negative differentiator. But that's the expectation now from consumers. That's not the positive differentiator. Yeah, um, fully agree. So, so, so let, let's talk a little bit about then the, that positive differentiation. You mentioned it being about really focusing on that customer and what those customers' motivations, goals, needs, stereotypes, emotions, what those things are. Um, I was watching a YouTube video that you had. Uh, I don't even remember. You have, you, have, you have so many great YouTube videos. I don't remember which one it was. Um, but you were talking basically about how organizations that look at themselves and say, how can we be a partner in the life of our humans and using digital to do that? Those are the organizations that are going to win. So can you talk a little bit about how you how an organization might become a partner in the life of a consumer using digital? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um Partner in life for me is, is, is about figuring out how you can add value to the customer at the exact right moment without being intrusive. Uh, the, it, it's about understanding the human behind the customer. We're, we're in a traditional process. What you try to do is try to optimize the transactions as much as possible to make sure that there are no frictions there. And that's, that's good. That's important. But as you said, that's the baseline. When you talk about a partner in life, It's about the life journey where you look at the worries, the dreams, the hopes that people have in their day-to-day life and where you try to add value in that uh, specific situation. Let let me give you a concrete example. Like when I was a dad for the first time, that was 2009, then my oldest son was born and I was very nervous about it, to be honest. I was very uncertain. I was like, I hope everything will go you know, everything will go right and that he's healthy and everything. So this is going to sound very nerdy, eh, David. So I just want to warn you, but I, I made an Excel we, we sheet. We like nerdy on this show. <laughs> so I, I made this Excel sheet and I, I created graphs um, about all the key KPIs of his life. So his his weight, how tall he was, how often his diapers had to be replaced, how, how well he slept, how much he ate. I had graphs of everything. I had this Excel sheet and it, it was probably my nerdy self trying to get control on the situation that was completely new for me and to make sure that we wouldn't make a mistake as, uh, as young parents. Now today, I, I see that Procter & Gamble creates this service called Lumi. It's called Lumi by Pampers that is basically 
creating a service for customers like me, but you don't have to build your own Excel sheet anymore. They do it. So they give you this whole package, like a smart mattress, a smart camera. They have sensors for the diapers. And they just track everything about the baby that you have, how often he or she sleeps, all the details. I mean, for all the crucial parts of their life, you get information. Because if you think about it, a young parent is worried about some basic essentials of the young life of their baby. Are they eating enough? Are they sleeping enough? Are they still breathing? And are they using their diaper enough? That's basically what, what you worry about. Well, that's exactly what Procter & Gamble measures for you. And they create some sort, some sort of a, you know, a certainty and control uh, and mental, you know, relaxation for young parents by using data on the spot. But if you think about the the benefits for them, I mean, think about all the data that they have about the life of of newborns, of, and of course they have a subscription model that you can get your diapers directly from them, so you don't have to go to the store. You don't have to worry about it anymore. It, they're being sent to you because they know exactly how many diapers that you use a day, so they know the whole thing. But for parents, you know, they're making your life easier, and it's not just about buying the diapers anymore. It's about creating this whole, you know, it's an ecosystem. Of, yeah feeling of certainty and feeling of everything is okay with my baby. That's what they're doing for you. So they, they know the concerns of young parents and they try to add value there. No, that's a, that's a great example of taking what was a commodity and turning it into a, a much larger service and an ecosystem around it. Yeah. Um, one of the things you hit on is something else that you talk a lot about, which is really kind of a, a subscription model and, and looking at how that plays uh, and basically creates a, a bigger life cycle of a customer as opposed to a one-time transaction. Um, what, what are some other subscription models right now that you're looking at that, that you think are, are a little bit, that make maybe a twist on the traditional subscription model that are interesting to you? Well, I, I see a lot of subscription models that are changing markets right now. Uh, um, where I, I see a broader trend, basically, where in the past, you as a customer... You went to a certain location to get a service. Also online, huh? you went to Amazon.com to buy stuff. And of course, we still do. But you, you also see the opposite trend where information, where uh, products, where the store is coming to you wherever you may be. Simple examples are you can buy directly from Instagram. Uh, TikTok is working together with Shopify to make sure that merchants can directly sell through TikTok. So the store is coming to us. And this, this is a whole new philosophy where more and more organizations are trying to get their services directly to the end user. And subscription models really help. Uh, one that we all know, and, and especially you guys, uh, look at the success of Disney+. Plus. Uh, and, and the perfect timing that they had to launch this thing. They weren't aware of that, but it was perfect timing. If it we was perfect, yeah. Uh, if you look back. But the interesting part of Disney+, Plus is that they use it to change the business model, uh, where you see suddenly that movies like Soul or Mulan are now sent directly to the home theater, basically skipping the movie theater. Today, movie theaters are closed, so this is the perfect moment in time to experiment with this. But if you saw the latest press conference of Disney, the investor meeting that they had, this is a new strategy. And 80% of all the new content that they will make will now go directly to the end user, which is a completely new business model. Uh, the Peloton example that I gave, you take a subscription on a virtual gym, um, but you also see how uh, restaurants, for instance, are trying out new models. Take Panera Bread that has a coffee subscription model. Uh, you don't have to pay much. I, I, I forgot how much it was, but I think like $5 a month. Yeah, it's like five, five or ten dollars a month, and and that gets you unlimited coffee. It's for free, basically. Huh? But just imagine the business opportunity that that is behind that. So I, I see subscription models being used in in all kind of markets um, to disrupt markets, but also to create loyalty. Uh, smart subscription models can create loyalty for your other businesses, like the Panera Bread coffee subscription. Yep. I mean, every time you're going to walk in, there's a big chance that you're going to grab something to eat as well. So this is creating, this is paid loyalty, basically, that they're uh, building. And and I think that's the disruptive part of those subscription models that are being used by, let's say, more traditional companies that didn't start their business in the sub subscription business. Yeah, the, the Panera one is such a good example of 
using that subscription to get customers in and buying a ton of other different things. Right. Um, we wrote about it a little bit last year, right when it first came out, talking about some of the economics and the the value chain of that approach. Um, and I think it's definitely something that sports teams can learn a lot from. Um, some Something else, I mean, I, I think, as you mentioned, Disney Plus and skipping the theaters from a sports organization perspective, I, I do think sports teams tend to be a little bit further behind here. And I, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, because they have these big brands that they've licensed out their brand more or less, whether it be through broadcasting or through consumer products they've almost lost some of that control that a company like Disney is now actively seeking to regain because the barrier for entry to connect directly with customers is so low now with new technologies and uh, just new companies that are popping up that are allowing that direct-to-consumer distribution. I I think there's a lot of sports companies and sports or sports and entertainment organizations that are trying to figure out how do, how do we do that? How might we, Mm-hmm. regain some of that brand control and get back to consumers. So I, I don't I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it's just something that's front of mind for me right now. Well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, Club Bruges. Are you familiar with the soccer team Club Bruges? I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> more more of an English Premier League guy myself, but go ahead. Uh, it's we're, we're a small country, so we, we don't have that many big European teams, but Club Bruges always used to be the number 2 in the in the Belgium Soccer League. Team from Brussels was always number 1. Um, but about 10 years ago, they got new ownership, um, local investor, local entrepreneur that bought the club, great CEO that they hired. And now for the last five years, they've been the number one. And financially, they outperform the, the others like, like crazy. And you see the effect in the, in, the, in the results in the league. Why do I mention them? Because they invest a lot in their branding and they invest a lot in the direct relationship with their customers, both uh, people who come to the stadium, but also their B2B relations. And this this season is very challenging because they have a lot of sponsors. And part of the deal is, of course, that you can bring your customers to the stadium and have a good time there and you have the opportunity to, to talk with them. And this, this is completely impossible. We're not allowed to let people in the soccer stadiums right now in Belgium. So the big um, challenge for them or the big risk is that all these sponsors would ask their money back. And that would be a big financial problem. And on the other hand, it would make sense that they ask it back because they're not getting any value. But Club Rouge created a community among their sponsors in the last few years. They created a group of people and they let them connect with each other. So it's not individual relationships, it's a community. And now they're looking to create additional value to this community that goes beyond the game and the the experience that you have in, in the stadium. So they created a whole package of extra value I'm one of the elements of the package. So I'm going to be the B2B uh, content guy. So we're going to organize webinars. We're going to do uh, video, um, um, yeah, videos at, uh, at the sponsors that is going to be shared on the channels of Club Rouge and they have a huge reach. So we're going to create a whole new kind of value for these, for these people. And in return, they're not going to ask their money back. And I, I really appreciate the the strategy that they have here. And it's, of course, years of investment that can get that result. But no one's, almost nobody is asking their money back. And they can do this because they have this direct link to that community of sponsors. And if you don't have that right now, I mean, you're missing out on, on such an important strategic asset. I think for any company, not just sports companies, but any company should just invest as much as they can in having that direct relationship with the customer. It's crucial. All all this stuff ties together, right? I mean, I I think about the strategy that you just laid out and and there are some pro teams that have kind of that community building strategy amongst their sponsors. Um, But it it really just goes back to being a partner in the life of your consumer. Exactly. If you're you're a corporate partner, if if you have a corporate partner or a sponsor what are they trying to do? They're partnering with you because they're trying to grow their business. As opposed to thinking, how can I get that guy extra signage? Why don't you think about how can we help this organization grow? And one of those ways might be by connecting him with other companies that can help. They can share leads. They can share uh, strategies. They can share tactics, 
trials, errors, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're doing more things to ultimately help that organization grow their or their organization and their consumer base, as opposed to just giving them signage and being like, oh, well, we can't give you signage anymore. So I don't know what we're going to do. Right. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, let, let, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, I, I kind of want to talk about uh, something else that I saw that you talked a little bit about, which is kind of creating these uh, let's call them ethical guidelines for dealing with customers' emotions. Uh, obviously, in, in the sports world, some of the sports and entertainment organizations have tens to hundreds of thousands of fans. Um, how, how do you how do you think about those ethical guidelines? Talk to us a little bit more about what you mean, what you meant by creating ethical guidelines for dealing with customers' emotions. Well, I, today, what we expect is that organizations take their responsibility. And that they try to act in the best interests of all stakeholders, both internally and externally. And to customers, I think it's really important that you are transparent about your service policies, about the product qualities, the history of your products, um, how they were developed, what your intentions are in terms of sustainability. And the, the problem today is that many organizations use a lot of technology like artificial intelligence that is so powerful that gives them the power, for instance, to personalize in in a very high, you know, high detailed kind of way. And if you do that, for instance, for pricing, then you could sometimes end up in a situation where there's an advantage or a benefit to be created for the organization, but at the same time, you are punishing Um, some of your customers. Uh, I'm afraid sometimes that artificial intelligence could become some sort of a temptation island for marketing people or business leaders. If marketing people are really, really nice, but what happens if you put them on temptation island? How will they react? And it's a traditional example, but if we look at the whole issue and scandal that there was with, with Volkswagen, and the diesel gate that they had, they basically programmed their car saying, if they open up your mouth, you have to lie. And that's basically what uh, what happened. Be- and it's so untransparent that, yeah, that's very hard to tell for the market what you're actually doing. And for me, the solution is very simple. It's about transparency. You know, most companies have to be, all companies have to be transparent about their financials. And you have external organizations that check if everything was done in an, in an ethical way. And if not, you get a fine. If it's really bad, you end up in jail. But there's like this independent authority that comes in and checks if you, if you follow the guidelines. We don't have this with AI and ethical standards right now. So because of that, it's maybe a temptation island. What if external experts come in and they look at the algorithms, they look at the data flows, at the, at the patterns that you're creating, I think that will force companies to become more ethical in the next few years. And if we don't do that, I'm sure that the temptation sometimes will be too high to create and install algorithms um, that just create benefits for the organization. And I don't think we want that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So so you talk a lot about organizations that invest in empathy, digital, and acting responsibly are organizations that are going to win in the future because those are the things that as consumers that we're caring more and more about. And I I do do think as it relates to transparency and you you use the VW example, I I think that that's kind of the baseline. But as I, as I understand it, right. And as I think about it, just listing where your financials go on your website, burying it somewhere, right. And saying, oh, it's out there if people want to find it. That is not good enough, right? Yeah. You almost have to lead with that transparency and be outward and, and upfront and, and have it be almost a, a big core part of your branding of here's what we do with our money. Here's why we exist. And here's where that money, that purchase that we're asking you to make, here's where that money's going to go. And if you're not upfront with that, it, people are going to go spend their money where they know where the money goes afterwards. Um, and, and so, I mean, I guess maybe, maybe expand on that a little bit because that's how I'm thinking about it. Am I thinking about it in the right way? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, many, one of the hypes in the business world is creating a purpose, creating a why. And uh, the theory about it is, is, is very good. But when you, when you look at how companies 
deal with it. It's sometimes so disappointing. Eh? Sometimes they create this one sentence and then that's their why or their purpose. And it's a sentence that they create to make sure that all the stuff that they've done in the last 10 years fits underneath it. And then they can say, look, this is what we do. That, then it has zero impact. I think you need to see it as a journey, as an ambition. This is a direction that we want to go into the next few years. And these are the challenges that we have to overcome to succeed in that. And dear customer, dear shareholders, you know, this is where we are right now. And we're not perfect yet. And two years from now, we're going to, you know, we're going to be at this point. And if we're not, you can take us, you can, you can uh, take us accountable for that. But just accept that we're going into this journey. And if it's an ambition, if it's a journey, I think then you can really motivate people to, to move into that direction and to contribute to that. But if you just create something that is the average of the averages, and it's just like an umbrella made for all the stuff that you've been doing in the past, then it has 0.0 impact, in my opinion. It's in, that, that's a whole other conversation that's really interesting, I think, because organizations that do that, that make it aspirational, if they don't clarify that it's aspirational, then it can really turn custom or their, their own employees off too, because then they can right. say, oh, well, we don't do that. That's not what we do. So I think if you are going to make it aspirational, which you should, uh, because again, that should help that statement, that purpose statement should guide you to your vision and get you to where you want to be down the road. Um, but you you got to clarify, hey, this is aspirational. This is where we want to go. We know we're not there right now, guys. Uh, we want to get here, though, yeah. because otherwise you can create cynicism within your organization. Exactly. And, and it's a very good point. Some people ask me, yeah, but Stephen, I mean, do all customers expect organizations to have a purpose and to contribute to a better world? Maybe not. But if you look at it from an employee kind of point of view, then the answer is absolutely yes. If you want to attract young talent, people that are you know eager to, to do something in, in their life, then of course you need to have a purpose and a, and a goal that is attractive to them because you know they want to work for an organization that isn't just about making money. They want to contribute to society. And if you don't offer that, you're going to miss out on a lot of the great talent that, that's out there. And and I think too, I mean, going off that, do all organizations have to have a purpose? That question. I mean, I mean, your purpose could be simple as we're providing the finest entertainment, right? That I mean, that is right. Disney's is around creating happiness by providing the finest in entertainment, right? They're, they're not saying we're gonna go change the world and make social you know, change, change the social dynamics of our society. They're not saying that they're saying we're going to go create entertainment. It's okay because people need entertainment. Yeah. Uh, people need whatever it is that you're doing. Don't, don't trivial, trivialize it, but also don't try to think you're something way bigger than you might be. It might lead you down areas that maybe you don't want to go, or maybe your employees don't want to go. Or that it's just not credible. I mean, right, right. Good point. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's move on to a, to a different topic a little bit. Uh, you know, we've mentioned Disney a couple times. Uh, I'm a huge I saw, Disney fan, David. Did you know that? Oh, I, I did because I saw one video that was about inside out that you did with joy. Yeah. Um, but let's start there. Okay. Why are you a huge Disney fan? Huh. You know, when I was, when I was 16 and they asked me what my dream job was as a 16 year old, I said, CEO of Disney. So it, <laughs> That was my dream. I didn't succeed, obviously. Um, so now I'm a Disney client. That's the closest that I could get. But I'm a, you know, I'm a Disney fan because of their creativity, the high standards that they have in everything that they do, and just the feeling that they give me. I have great memories of visiting Disney parks, and I love watching Disney films. And you know, today I'm I'm a huge fan of the organization because. I mean, Disney is, what is it, almost 100 years old. Mickey Mouse is older than 90 years old. And they're still reinventing themselves year after year. And they're such a huge company and they do that in a successful way. But as a customer, I'm just, yeah, I'm a huge fan. I love going there. I, I, it was on my list this in 2020 to go to all Disney parks in the world. I still have the, there's only one black spot in my Disney theme park uh, life and that's the one in Shanghai. So we were planning to yep. go there last year, but unfortunately that got that one got postponed. So that's one of my life goals. And I had two crazy Disney dreams that actually came true. And, Let's hear them. Uh, uh, first one was I wanted to have a role in a Disney film, and uh, I have a very small, tiny role in Cars Three in the Flemish version here in Belgium. 
So that one, that was something that I was. Wait, really what, proud is, what of. is your role? You can't, you can't gloss over that. What is the role? The role is I'm. Um, what's the English word? I was, I was commenting. Do you say that? I was sure. on a race. I was give. I was oh, the yeah, guy yeah. talking about the the race. How do you call it? What's the right word for that? Commentating. Commentating. That's what I was doing. When the old car that you know Lightning McQueen is such a fan of, when he completely crashed, I was the guy. Uh, describing that process. Just 30 seconds, but that was me. That was me. Now I'm going to go have to watch Cars 3. <laughs> Even though you're you're in the Flemish version, I've never seen a single Cars movie. Oh, no. Confession. Yeah, well, Con- take Cars 3 and watch the <laughs> Flemish version with English subtitles, and then you will have me, then you will have me in there. And All right, the, what, and what, the was, second, what was your other Disney dream? The second yeah, thing was that I wanted to be in a Disney parade once, and I thought that was impossible but suddenly we were in Disneyland Hong Kong with our family two years ago or so. And um, we were walking there in Main Street and we were the only non-Asian people. And suddenly there were some cast members that came to us and they said, Do you guys want to open up the park today? We have this daily ceremony here to open the park together with Mickey and Minnie and his friends. Do you guys want to do that? We were like, yeah, of course. So they probably took us because we were like, the, the black sheep and all the among all the other people. And they, uh, yeah, they came to us and then we could go behind the scenes and then we could walk on through the castle, through the Cinderella castle together with Mickey and Minnie and my children could like with big scissors open up the park and there were like 10,000 people taking pictures of us and we were part of the parade. It was a beautiful moment in my life, David. <laughs> How many people have you told that story to? Not that many, actually. Not that many. I think it's the third time that I talk about this in a in a podcast or an interview. You're ruining my point on that. My my point was going to be you've told everybody about that Brilliant. story, yeah, <laughs> but I'm shy about it. I'm shy about it. No, but you're right. I told all my friends and my family, of course, but professionally, yeah. I haven't talked about it that much. Sorry it's, that I it, ruined your point. <laughs> you no, know, no, you're you're good. Uh, but I think it's one of those things that you know, for us, every sports and entertainment organization and, and every organization really can do is you, you, th- you look at it and you say, how do we architect some of these magic moments? Right now, it wasn't scripted. Go find Steven and his family today. Employee number 10. Right. You got to go do that. But it, it the the magical moments are architected behind the scenes in that we know that every day a family has to get selected to go do that right mm-hmm. and an employee has the freedom and the the flexibility to choose who they think is the deserving family to go do that so it's a good it's a it's a good moment for the employee knowing that they picked a, a really grateful appreciative family <laughs> to do it and they made they felt like they made that moment but it's also you know, it was something that was architected, but also has some room for for uh, improvisation and, and genuine right. uh, freshness, if you will. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, well, while we're talking about Disney, I see the sign in the back. You, you got to talk about this this framework that you have or this this mantra, which is kind of what would joy do? Um, so talk to us a little bit about how organizations might use that framework. Yeah, it's uh, it's from the film Inside Out, as you mentioned. And I use that as a metaphor in customer experience, and I invite people to watch it because if you, it's about our emotions in our brain, right? That's what the movie is about. It's a very cool movie. But if you, if you study it, what you see is that the person who programmed our brain made a huge mistake because we have five basic emotions and four of them are negative. And the only positive one that we have is joy. And then you have anger, fear, disgust, and uh, what was, what's the what's the other one? So anger, fear, sadness. Sadness is the other one. There it is. There we go. So four negative emotions, one positive emotion. That is that's the way that we are programmed, and that's why customers complain so much. They cannot help it. They are programmed in the wrong way. That's why we complain so much. We can we can't help it. We're programmed in the wrong way. So I always invite my clients that in the next meeting that they're in, and the next time that they're going to have a debate about how to deal with a specific customer situation. And they have the feeling that one of those four annoying characters is taking over the meeting. I invite them to stand up in that meeting and ask their colleagues, what would joy do? And the more decisions that joy can take in your company, the higher your points on the human relation in customer experience will be. And the more the four annoying characters will make decisions, the the lower your points will be. 
And it's, it's, you know, it's something that people really understand. And it's, it's so important because the world is becoming more and more digital that we sometimes forget the value of the human interaction. And um, there's this old economic law. It's the law of scarcity. And it, it learns us when something becomes scarce, it actually increases in value, right? And the human touch is becoming really, really scarce. And because of that, it's extremely valuable. And the more digital the world becomes, the more valuable the human interaction will be. And then the question is, well, what do humans need to do in a digital world? Well, the answer is simple. They need to excel in those fields where computers are less prominent in. And then you end up with those typical human skills like empathy, passion, creativity um, that a machine cannot do. Uh, the, the positive energy transfer between humans, it's so valuable. And the mistake that we sometimes make is that we, we are humans, obviously. And because we're humans, we think that we automatically score high points on the human level. And I disagree with that. It's not because you're human that you're also acting like a human. There are many humans in customer experience that act like a machine. They follow the script from A to Z and they, they don't show any empathy with a specific context. And because of that, customers become unhappy. So you, you need to have those human capabilities you know, uh, valued in an organization and make sure that you have employee, employees that, can, that are allowed to color outside of the lines in favor of, of their customers. If they feel that it's necessary to, to leave the script, they should be able to do so. Yeah. I mean, that's such a good point. And it, it's, it's incredible. It's an incredible point. I think it can have really deep impact when you're applying that on the customer side of things. But I think it also has a ton of impact when you apply it internally with your own employees. Yeah. To your point about scarcity, as we continue to be remote work, I mean, most most organizations that we work with are still having everybody work from home. Um, and so more and more and more, you're interacting with people via Slack or Teams or email. And that that human interaction is is it continues to be more scarce. So I think as as leaders within our organization, we've got to apply that same framework, that same way of thinking. I agree. Um, I agree. It's very important. Well, I, I kind of want to cover a, a couple of random questions. Sometimes we ask these questions with guests, but I feel like they're going to be really interesting coming from you. So they're, they're more standardized questions, if okay. you will. But I want to hear kind of a contrarian belief that you have. So something that 90% of people that you know, or maybe even in our CX field, would disagree with you with. Uh, so what, what's a belief that you have that most people would disagree with you on, especially as it relates to customer experience? Um, that you have to accept, mentally accept that you, have, that you will always have a percentage of customers that will take advantage of your rules. And you just have to learn to live with that. I've, I've met so many people that try to create customer service rules to make sure that the organization is protected against, you know, uh, customers that have bad intentions. And I, I believe you have to, I, I don't think you have to do that. Because if you do, you are punishing the 95% of your customers that is actually showing good intentions. That are normal people like you and me that you can have a conversation with. And if something went wrong, that they can understand it. And if you solve it, that they're happy. If you have a special campaign, that they will use it, but don't take advantage of it. But you also have the 5%, you know, um, people who, who have bad intentions. And that's just the way it is. And if you mentally accept that, and you put your faith in the 95% of the people, you will create customer service standards that are much higher than what you can do if you don't accept the fact that some people try to take advantage of you. That's such a good one that, I mean, we talk about this one a lot because at Disney, so uh, we had a policy basically where if you spilled a drink, you drop an ice cream cone, whatever it might be, that an employee can go and replace that item, yeah. right? Uh, let's say you you just bought a new shirt and you put it in your stroller, you go to ride the ride, you left the stroller outside, rainstorm happened, clothes got soaked, whatever it is, we can go exchange those items out, get you a brand new one, whatever it might be. And when, when we at Disney, when we used to use that example to show people, hey, this is something that you could do, people would say, no, 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 we can't give stuff out for free. People are going to take advantage of us left and right. And it's like, unless you put this on the front page of your website that this is your policy, right? People are not going to take advantage of it. But if you do, you can, 
you know, we, we keep track of names of when that happens. So that way we know, Hey, yeah. every time Steven comes, he's asked, he's, he's dropping his ice cream cone at the end of the ice cream cone <laughs> 10 different times a day. Right. We know that cause we're keeping track of some of that. Um, but you can basically assume that people are not going to, and the, the 95% of people that aren't going to take advantage or that aren't going to abuse it, they're going to make up for it in tenfold by the amount of people that they tell, wow, you would never believe what happened to me. Yep. Um, yep. So I, I love that one. Yeah. There's this company in Belgium that I, uh, that I love to work with. It's called Smart Photo. It's a European company, but their headquarters are here in Belgium. They're, they're a website where you can uh, make photo books and stuff like this. And their, their mission was to give people great memories that last a lifetime. Huh? That's what you do with pictures. And in their contact center, they had a number of calls of people saying, look, I made this photo book and I made, a, I made a typo. I made a mistake. Is there a way that you guys can solve this? And the, the standard answer was like, no, we're afraid not. You can, what you can do is you can go online, you can fix the typo, and then you can reorder it and we will be able to reprint it. And then the people said, yeah, but that's an 150 euros or something like this. I'm, I'm not going to pay twice for it. So, okay, never mind. Um, it was my mistake. So... Okay. And we had an argument, we had a discussion about this. And I said, you know, guys, your, your mission is to provide people with lifelong memories. And if there's a typo in their photo book, they're, they're always going to look into that. They're always going to focus on that. And it, you're not achieving your goal. And they said, well, why don't we just, if someone makes a typo, why don't we just fix it? They can fix it and we reprint it completely for free. And some people were saying, yeah, it's going to cost us a lot of money, you know, the whole thing. And then they looked into the data and, you know, it's less than 100 people a year that make a typo. So it's going to cost them a couple of thousands of euros. But the word of mouth that's behind that is, is just incredible. But they actually put this on their website. This is on their homepage. Why work with us? Because if you make a mistake, dear customer, we will fix it for free. And basically... In, in that situation, you don't have to worry about it because no one is putting a typo in their photo book on purpose. They just want to have that photo right. book as soon as possible. It's just when they make a mistake. So they are using this now in their communication. If you make a mistake, we fix it for you. And you should see their growth stats. It's just, it's just crazy how the fast they're growing. Such a great example. Um, well, let's, let's hit another question real quick. Okay. Um, when, when is the last time... You changed your mind about something in customer experience and why? <laughs> That's a difficult question. Um, I, I change my mind quite often, but I think the, the biggest change is um, the disappointment that I feel towards technology in customer service, like chatbots or social media. Um, I was a big promoter of all that. And today I, I, I believe that there's nothing better than the human interface in customer service. The technology doesn't deliver upon the promise yet. If I think most people get frustrated with chatbots um, because you ask them something and in 95% of the cases, they don't get you. And it's just, uh, it's just not good enough. And social media as a service channel, I was convinced that Facebook and Twitter would be really important there. But if you if you really look into it, they're they're too slow, those channels. If you have to wait an hour to get a reply, then that is considered as being fast in terms of the, the company. As a customer, waiting an hour is just unacceptable. Right. And if you then have to wait five minutes on a phone call, then the phone call wins. And then you can ask a follow-up question and you get your answer right away. So I'm I'm now today convinced that the human channel for customer service is by far the most effective and the best one to use. And digital is not living up to the, the minimum standards yet. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, the, from the customer's expectation, we expect instant. That's, that's what we want from an right. interaction perspective. And yeah. to your point, I mean, if I answer an email quicker than 12 hours, I, I emailed you quick because I'm working on all these other things, right? I'm not just waiting for your email to hit my inbox. And, and I think that's the challenge between delivering on what customers actually want. And that's where technology, you know, the phone line almost is, is always going to be best there. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's, uh, let's cover one more thing. I mean, 
What do you what do you feel like is the most misunderstood thing about customer experience today and, and where we're at with it? Um, when people are talking to you and you're talking to different clients uh, or, or people that are asking you questions at your keynotes that you deliver around the world, yeah. what do you feel like is the most misunderstood thing right now about customer experience? Maybe two myths. Uh, the first one is that sometimes people come to me and then they say, yeah, but Steven, it's all all good your ideas about customer centricity but you know let's be honest customers don't know what they want and then they come with the traditional quote of henry ford uh, if we would have asked people what they want they would have said faster horses um, i don't think customer experience is about asking people what they want it's about understanding what people need and then creating services for that it's not that you have to ask customers and then execute blindly it's about understanding how to bring that value i think that that's the first thing the second um, myth is that a lot of people think, okay, this is all cool stuff, but I don't have enough budget to do this. I, you know, I, my answer is always that the one thing that has the biggest impact on your customer experience is completely for free. It's being more friendly and it's being more human. That's what people really, really value. And it, it doesn't cost you anything. It's just the mindset and the energy that you put into it. And it requires zero budget. So thinking that making customers happy means increasing budgets on something, I think that's a big misunderstanding. Yeah. Two, two huge myths that we deal with all the time as well. Yeah. Um, the understanding aspect, right? I, I think for us, as we look at it, it's certainly not asking fans, what do you want? Because fans and customers are almost always going to want more for less, Right. And so if you go out and you directly ask that, that's the kind of things that you're going to get. But if you go out to understand what really makes you happy in life, customer, or what really makes you sad, what are the hassles that you're experiencing? What are you shaking your head and smacking your forehead saying, why do I have to deal with this? If you can understand those things, you can then create those service and mm-hmm. services and products, like you said. Um, so that, those are those are huge elements as we think about all this. Um, well, let, let's bring us to a close here. Um, any parting words of advice for our audience of senior leaders? Anything that they can do um, to really ultimately make their organizations more customer centric? Yeah, I think one important one is to look at the world more from your customer's point of view. Uh, it's like senior leaders. I, the question I always ask is if, if you would be a senior leader of a bank and you would lose your credit card. How do you get a new one? Do you follow the process of the customer or do you ask your assistant to get a new one? And uh, most of the time, people in senior leadership positions never follow the road that the customer has to follow. I mean, if you are the president of a big sports club, how do you go into the stadium? Do you have the same experience as those 40,000 people or do you have a privileged entry point and is it completely different from you, for you? Usually it's different your experience as senior leader. So my advice will be just make sure that you have the same experience now and then as your customers have, and then look for small details and small friction, become your own little friction hunter, and then look for all those details that you could improve. And you're missing out on those if you take your VIP uh, process. And that's a missed opportunity to improve your experience. That's such a good one. And among many other things that I've gotten from following you and and watching your YouTube videos, uh, now I've got to read your book later this year. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to borrow that one if you don't mind. That's such a good example. Of course, Um, you can borrow everything. Stephen, where can people reach you uh, or follow along your journey or or reach out to you uh, if they've got more direct questions? Um, I share most of my content on YouTube, Instagram, and it's every time just my account name is also my name. It's youtube.com slash Stephen Van Belligam. On Instagram, it's Stephen Van Belligam. Um, I share a lot of content on LinkedIn, and they can find all my contact information on my website, which is my name, stephenvanbelligam.com. Perfect. Stephen, thanks so much. It's been a a joy having you on the episode. Um, And we'll talk soon. My pleasure. Take care, David. Hey, guys. Before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, 
We're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.